Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, I'll be reading and discussing the section The Greeting in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. So let's get started. The Greeting It was only in the late afternoon that Zarathustra, after long, vain searching and roaming about, returned home to his cave. But when he was opposite it, not twenty paces away, then occurred that which he now least expected. He heard again the great cry of distress and astonishing thing. This time it came from his own cave. It was a protracted, manifold, strange cry, however, and Zarathustra clearly distinguished that it was composed of many voices, although heard from a distance, it might sound like a cry from a single throat. Thereupon, Zarathustra sprang towards his cave, and behold, what a spectacle awaited him after that concert, for all those whom he had passed by that day were seated together, the king on the right and the king on the left, the old sorcerer, the pope, the voluntary beggar, the shadow, the conscientious man of the spirit the sorrowful prophet and the ass the ugliest man however had placed a crown upon his head and slung two purple sashes around him for like all the ugly he loved to disguise and embellish himself but in the midst of this melancholy company stood zarathustra's eagle agitated and with feathers ruffled for he had been expected to answer too much for which his pride had no answer. The wise serpent, however, hung about his neck. Zarathustra beheld all this with great amazement. Then, however, he examined each of his guests with gentle curiosity, read what was in their souls, and was amazed anew. In the meantime, the assembled guests had risen from their seats and were respectfully waiting for Zarathustra to speak. Zarathustra, however, spoke thus, You despairing men, you strange men, so it was your cry of distress I heard, and now I know too where to seek him whom I sought today in vain, the higher man. He sits in my own cave, the higher man. But why am I surprised? Have I myself not enticed him to me with honey offerings and cunning bird calls of my happiness? But it seems to me you are ill adapted for company. You disturb one another's hearts, you criers of distress, when you sit here together. First of all, Someone else must come. Someone to make you laugh again. A good, cheerful jack pudding. A dancer and breeze and madcap. Some old fool or other. What do you think? 
But forgive me, you despairing man, that I speak before you such petty words, truly unworthy of such guests. But you do not guess what makes my heart wanton. You yourselves do it, and the sight of you. Forgive me for it, for anyone beholding a man in despair grows brave. To encourage a despairing man, anyone thinks himself strong enough for that. To me have you given this strength, a goodly guest gift, my exalted guests. Very well, do not be angry with me if I offer you something of mine. This is my kingdom and my domain, but what is mine shall be yours for this evening and this night. My animals shall serve you, let my cave be your resting place. No one shall despair at my hearth and home. I protect everyone from his wild animals in my preserve, and that is the first thing I offer you, security. The second, however, is my little finger, and when you have that, take the whole hand, very well, and the heart in addition. Welcome to this place, welcome my guests. Thus spoke Zarathustra and laughed with love and mischievousness. After this greeting, his guests bowed themselves again and held a respectful silence. The king on the right, however, replied to him in their name. By the manner in which you have offered us hand and greeting, O Zarathustra, do we recognize you as Zarathustra? You have humbled yourself before us. You have almost injured our respect. But who could have humbled himself with such pride as you? That uplifts us ourselves. It is a refreshment to our eyes and hearts. Just to see this world, we climb higher mountains than this mountain. For we have come as sightseers. We wanted to see what makes sad eyes bright. And behold, already all our distressful crying is over. Already our hearts and minds are opened and delighted. Little is needed for our hearts to grow wanton. Nothing more gladdening grows on earth, O Zarathustra, than an exalted, robust will. It is the earth's fairest growth. A whole landscape is refreshed by one such tree. To the pine tree, O Zarathustra, do I compare him who grows up like you, tall, silent, hard, alone, of the finest, supplest wood, magnificent. At last, however, reaching out with strong tree branches for its domain, asking bold questions of the winds and storms and whatever is at home in the heights, replying more boldly, a commander, a victor. Oh, who would not climb high mountains to behold such trees? The gloomy man, too, and the ill-constituted refresh themselves at your tree, O Zarathustra. 
At your glance, even the restless man grows secure and heals his heart. And truly, many eyes today are raised to your mountain and your tree. A great longing has arisen, and many have learned to ask, Who is Zarathustra? And he into whose ear you have ever poured your song and your honey, all the hidden men, the hermits and hermit couples, say all at once to their hearts, does Zarathustra still live? There is no longer any point in living. It is all one. Everything is in vain, except we live with Zarathustra. Why does he not come, he who has proclaimed himself so long? Thus many ask. Has solitude devoured him, or should we perhaps go to him? Now solitude itself yields and breaks apart, and can no longer contain its dead. The resurrected are to be seen everywhere. Now the waves rise and rise around your mountain, O Zarathustra, and however high your height may be, many must reach up to you. Your bow shall not sit in the dry for much longer, and that we despairing men have now come into your cave and are no longer despairing, that is only a sign and omen that better men are on their way to you. For this itself is on its way to you, the last remnant of God among men, that is, all men possessed by great longing, great disgust, great satiety, all who do not want to live, except they learn to hope again, except they learn from you, O Zarathustra, the great hope. So, the greeting, and we have Zarathustra return back to his cave, and then he hears a cry of distress, and it turns out to be all the previous characters that we've encountered so far in part four are all having a little get-together in his cave. And he seems surprised by this, the fact that there's all these different people in his cave. And it's quite funny there because every single section so far has always ended along the lines of come up to my cave or come up to my cave and my animals will look after you and so on. So Zarathustra suddenly is astonished by the fact that people are there, despite the fact that, of course, he's the one who invited them there in the first place. And so we have this collection of all the previous characters. And let's have a little quick refresh and going a little bit back over just very briefly, what all these different characters have represented in the previous section so far. Because that's going to play a really important role for the second half of this section. And what Zarathustra is going to say back to the king on the right here. So let's go through the characters as they pop up in this section. So we have the kings, the king on the right and the king on the left. 
and they were seeking out Zarathustra because everyone at their court was false and just said whatever they thought that the kings would like. And so why did they seek out Zarathustra in the first place was to try and have that form of genuineness or a form of truth in the midst of all this falsity that was continually displayed to them. And from that was also a nice concept of performance and acting that also popped up there because people would only perform and act a certain way in order to please others. And then again, that problem of genuineness comes out because how do we know anyone is actually being genuine or actually saying the truthful things to us? How do we not know that we're being deceived by these people all the time? And then moving on to the next character, we have the old sorcerer. And the reason why he was called a sorcerer is because not of the reason that he's able to perform magic, but rather that the magic comes in the performance of wanting others to love him. And so we have that whole aspect there of whatever the sorcerer would say would be complete hot air. That is to say there would be no genuine belief in what he was saying, Rather, all what he wanted was adoration and other people to love him. And what he was a great magician at, what is he a great sorcerer at? Precisely all that magic and making it look good for other people to love him in the first place. And then we have the character of the Pope, who was the character of a priest that was looking for the last pious individual. And why was that the case? Is because humanity had accepted the idea of the death of God. Then we go into the voluntary beggar. And the voluntary beggar was someone who wanted people to love him. And how did he try to achieve that? Through giving up all his wealth. Hence why he's called the voluntary beggar. And then the voluntary beggar also had that connection into Epicureanism and that whole aspect of living life in the most simplest way, only based upon what we need, which is natural and necessary. Then the next character is the shadow. And the shadow turned out not to be Zarathustra's literal shadow, but rather a wanderer who was attaching himself onto Zarathustra and his teaching. And one of the main things for that section was the idea that this wanderer was searching for a goal or a home, as he would say, some sort of basis and foundation. And it was precisely touching upon the ideas against an anarchic or chaotic basis where you could just do anything you wanted whatsoever. In fact, the wanderer wanted some form of basis and security. 
but didn't know what that was and hence why Zarathustra was so appealing to him because he saw that Zarathustra provided precisely that basis. And then we have the conscientious man of the spirit which is the man from the section the leech and the man who covers himself in leeches what is that representing the idea of the ethics an ethical model that people will burden themselves and choose and cherry pick is a good way of putting it various different models and things that they like and therefore take what they like from various different things and burden themselves down with various different aspects and not really adopt one clear total idea but rather adopt many different ideas all at once and then we have the character the sorrowful prophet which was a character right near the start of part four and his whole argument was nothing is worthwhile knowledge chokes and so what the prophet represents is nihilism and the whole idea that everything is absurd and nothing is meaning anymore the next character is called the ass and i've had a good flick back through part four and i cannot find where exactly this character pops up whatsoever but it has popped up previously and it's that whole relation into being a donkey and just being idiotic as a character. After this is the ugliest man. And the ugliest man was all about the death of God. And who is the ugliest man was the murderer of God. And as it says here, he wants to make himself all glamorous looking with two purple sashes and like all ugly people love to disguise and embellish himself and so that gives us a nice quick refresh about who these characters are and so one of the main things that we can take away from where we're up to now is that we've had this whole relation into death of God as an idea come up really strongly in part four. And we've had that relation into organized religion, the loss of organized religion, and as well as trying to find some form of stability. And what potentially would this stability look like? Would it be an ethics based upon do whatever you want? No. Also, we've had this whole idea based upon the psychology as well as the social makeup of people and how they would react with the loss of God. How would people interact with each other? Would it be in a nice, genuine way? No. And so, in the midst of all this is a various different analysis that's going on here within part four of what are the types of people that we have so far very much ego driven no actual basis and belief and truth whatsoever everything's all about manipulation 
everything's always about trying to make it serve your own ends and therefore we have this really nice Machiavellian style of human nature that's popped up also in previous sections as well where we would have that whole aspect of having a good public image making other people love and adore you but behind closed doors you can be a deceitful horrible person and hence why there's so much good examples that fits precisely into politics for that where politicians try to have a great public image and then what they don't want is all the stuff behind closed doors to come out into the newspapers and so there's a cry of distress from this group as a collective here why why is there a need for this cry of distress is because with the loss of god as we've seen there's this whole aspect of trying to find a new foundation and a new basis as well as that relation into ethics how are we going to act without this divine basis for our actions and they all lean really hard on Zarathustra as a character now, which is really interesting in itself. Before, we had Zarathustra as pretty much this outcast, this hermit-like character. Nobody really cared about what he had to say. He was just this sort of oddball character that would go around talk to people and just move on throughout the story now we've reached the point where suddenly this oddball character is actually being taken seriously taken seriously to the point it's got a bit of a cult mentality going on here in the sense of all of these people that we've met so far in the previous sections idolize Zarathustra to not only the extent that he's going to be a great teacher but also idolize that he's going to give them the absolute perfect lifestyle and how they should live their lives and we get that from the whole speech from the king on the right as it says as he's the representative to talk for the group as he says there to the pine tree and this whole discussion about Zarathustra being like a pine tree and it's all whole point there one of the aspects that they admire about Zarathustra is basically that he has weathered the storms is a good expression he's took what life has got to offer him and had all the different various hardships but there he still stands he's been able to still stand despite all that hardship in the first place and then what's the next thing that they really like about Zarathustra is this whole healing quality that's described here the gloomy man too and the ill-constituted refresh themselves at your tree O Zarathustra at your glance even the restless man grows secure and heals his heart so in the midst of all this instability within each given character and what's going on who is the thing that always manages to bring them back to a form of security tries to resolve their problems is Zarathustra 
And because of that, they find it very healing that your problems could be solved. And therefore, they love that quality about Zarathustra. And the first part then rounds off saying, well, we've found you so great. There's then going to be another bunch of people that's all going to come up to your cave and they're all just going to love and adore you like we have. So let's continue on then and we'll have Zarathustra's response to the group. Thus spoke the king on the right and grasped Zarathustra's hand to kiss it. But Zarathustra resisted his adoration and stepped back, startled, silently and abruptly, as if escaping into the far distance. But after a short while, he was again with his guests, regarded them with clear, questioning eyes and said, My guests... You hire men, I will speak clearly and in plain German to you. It is not for you that I have been waiting in these mountains. Clearly and in plain German, God help us, said the king on the left to himself at this point. It is clear he does not know the good Germans, this wise man from the east. But he means uncouthly and in German. Very well, nowadays, that is not in quite the worst taste. Truly, you may all be higher men, Zarathustra went on, but for me, you are not high and strong enough. For me, that is to say, for the inexorable that is silent within me, but will not always be silent. And if you belong to me, it is not as my right arm, for he who himself stands on sick and tender legs, as you do, wants above all, whether he knows it or conceals from himself, to be spared. My arms and my legs, however, I do not spare. I do not spare my warriors. How, then, could you be fit for my warfare? With you I should still spoil every victory. And some of you would give in simply on hearing the loud beating of my drums. Neither are you handsome enough nor sufficiently well born for me. I need pure smooth mirrors for my teaching. Upon your surface even my own reflection is distorted. Many a burden, many a memory weighs down your shoulders. Many an evil dwarf crouches in your corners, and there is a hidden mob in you too. And although you are high and of a higher type, much in you is crooked and malformed. There is no smith in the world who could hammer you straight and into shape for me. You are only bridges, may higher men than you step across upon you. You are steps. So do not be angry with him who climbs over you into his height. From your seed there may one day grow for me a genuine sun and perfect air. But that is far ahead. You yourselves are not those to whom my heritage and name belong. It is not for you that I wait here in these mountains. It is not with you that I may go down for the last time. 
You have come to me only as omens that higher men are already on their way to me. Not men possessed of great longing, great disgust, great say-e, and that which you call the remnant of God. No, no, thrice no, it is for others that I wait here in these mountains, and I will not lift my foot from here without them. For higher, stronger, more victorious, more joyful men, such as are square-built in body and soul, laughing lions must come. O oh, my guests, you strange men, have you yet heard nothing of my children, and that they are on their way to me? Speak to me of my gardens, of my blissful islands, of my beautiful new race. Why do you not speak of them? This guest gift do I beg of your love, that you speak to me of my children. In them I am rich, for them I became poor. What have I not given? What would I not give to possess one thing, these children, this living garden, these trees of life of my will and of my highest hope? Thus spoke Zarathustra, and suddenly halted in his discourse, for his longing overcame him, and he closed his eyes and mouth because his heart was so moved, and all his guests too remained silent and stood still and dismayed, except that the old prophet started to make signs with his hands and his features. So then we have Zarathustra's response to the group and it's a rejection of their adoration and idolization of him which is absolutely no surprise whatsoever and he says to them i'll speak to you in plain german which means also i'll speak to you in plain english which is to put things clearly and simply for everybody to understand and the first thing that he starts to get into is the psychology of all these different characters. What do they all share? You all want to be spared. What does this mean? That you've all ran into problems and you want to be spared from the current situation that you're in. How are you spared through latching yourself onto me that is Zarathustra as a character, and through my answers and through what I'm going to say, you're going to try and use it as to try and get out of all the problems that you're currently in. But that is not the way to do things. And then it goes nicely into the whole aspect about warriors there as it says my arms and my legs however i do not spare i do not spare my warriors how then could you be fit for my warfare and it goes right back into part one of the section of war and warriors when the whole argument in that section is there is a lot of soldiers in the world but not enough warriors what are soldiers, precisely what this group is trying to be, latch themselves onto a specific person 
and ultimately become a soldier for their viewpoint and will defend everything that that person says and absolutely love and adore them. Whilst as the warriors are those people who have their own beliefs, own ideas and can argue for their own points can still admire another person's view, of course, but never to the extent they will go into the extremes of absolutely defending another person completely and having the other person's viewpoint completely affect their own and take it over. So you therefore have the conflict between the soldiers who are just a copy or a replica of whatever individual it would be and then the warriors would be those people who want to argue for their own viewpoints and own opinions and that's one of the things that we've had so far from Zarathustra in response you all want to be spared you all want to be soldiers for me but in fact I'm looking for warriors not for soldiers and then we get into the whole argument that these characters are a stepping stone to the higher man. And I think that itself is a really interesting idea here. That these characters all represent various different aspects and different problems that we've encountered so far with the death of God. This is the moments and movements as Zarathustra is saying here. This whole relation in to try to find another foundation, this whole process of trying to work our way through all these problems, they're all stepping stones to eventually getting towards the higher man. One of the problems then that's highlighted with this group as a whole is that they all have a great disgust, a great longing, a great say-e, and also we have the remnants of God, which is represented by the priest or pope character who is looking for the last pious individual. And what exactly must this be replaced with? Laughing lines and a joyful basis instead what is exactly all this getting at is that we have all this midst of trying to figure out where we're going to go and what is going to form a new basis we don't want a return back into the same that is to say we don't want to return back into all the problems that is previously occurred through a focus on afterlife, death, metaphysics, away from this world. Rather, we want precisely a focus on the here and now, the world, the body, creation, all those joyful things. Why is that? Because we can use the example, as I always like to do, is go back into Plato here because we can use this as such a great example 
for how not to form the basis. When you have Socrates and Phaedo at the end of his life willing to drink poison, then we have a really incredibly harmful and negative outlook for exactly how knowledge as well as ethics and the whole of how we got to live our life all fold nicely into themselves there. Everything that we do in the here and now is just solely focused upon the fact that we're going to have a good afterlife. That's one of the main things that you can take away from Fido. But what we can say for the Nietzsche from that is to say, well, if we looked at the psychology of Socrates, is this a healthy individual in Fido? No. Why not? Because he's suicidal. He's clearly in an unhealthy mindset. And this unhealthy mindset has plagued the history of thought. So what we don't want to go back to is an unhealthy outlook, an unhealthy mindset that's going to be the way in which we move forward. The way we have to move forward is in fact joyful. Again, based on the here and now, upon the world, upon our bodies. And so we have that lovely relation into the laughing line. And where exactly does this character of the laughing line come from? Is back in part one, we have the section, the three metamorphoses, and we have those three characters. We have the camel, we have the lion, and then we have the children. So the camel is representing the burdens that we take upon ourselves. The line is the person that does battle with the history of ideas, wants things to change, is represented by a great fight with a dragon, lion versus this big dragon there. It's not something that's easy to change. And then from all that, we have the children, and hence why we have rounding off this section, this whole movement towards a laughing line and then the children. So the laughing line then, we're saying we're not only got to do battle with ideas and ideas from the past, but also this whole challenge and what we want to create in the future has to be joyful because we can very much easily fall back into the traps of the past. And then very much like the group in this section, they are in the midst of all this battling with themselves and with ideas from the past. And so, who exactly is Zarathustra waiting for the children? What do the children allow for and what do they represent? An absolute fresh basis for, for everything. Why are they not filled with the ideas of revenge and resentment? Or a great longing is another one that's used there at the end of the section. If you are building things based upon those things, then that's going to be a harmful thing, Nietzsche is going to say. Because it's nothing that's going to be productive, nothing that's going to be based upon joy or creation for everyone. So you need to 
have a fresh basis away from all these qualities and it's going to be based upon the joy of children in that creative state and it's kind of an interesting thing and i think i've said this in previous episodes as well normally when you deal with philosophy and the whole idea of any establishment of any foundation or anything whatsoever is always based upon the actions of a rational adult here you have a complete reversal of the model entirely in order to have a basis for things we have to be like joyful children and immediately you're struck with the ideas of what children what benefits do children have Adults have an education, adults have experience. What possible benefits could a child have over an adult? And Nietzsche wants you to pick upon all the problems with that as a statement as well. That precisely people will use their own knowledge, their own experiences, and that whole saying of, well, I've had X amount of years of experience in something that makes me automatically better. Challenging all this allowing ourselves to get into that fresh basis precisely allows us to return back into a state where ideas are played with again where ideas are novel where they can be picked apart where they're no longer concrete very much like the ideas that popped up in previously as well of a sandcastle you can play with a sandcastle you can build it any which way you like but that sandcastle will be very much a temporary thing and very much like children in that state as well creative joyful just enjoying the experience of creating the sandcastle not thinking too much about it whatsoever quite happy to have built something and then just allow it to wash away but when you come in to deal with structures of knowledge ethical models everybody gets very defensive about them and defensive about specific people and ideas and that's the whole point that Nietzsche wants to make stop idolizing these people stop putting up these models as absolutes everything needs to be played with everything is novel lit return back into this playfulness like children have because then we allow for creativity to emerge we allow newness to emerge and we allow different ways to view things and different ideas to emerge at the same time so that about wraps up another episode so in this section then we've had Zarathustra then talk to all the characters in the previous sections and they've all met up in his cave then we've had this sort of idolization and adoration of the characters for Zarathustra because they see him as resolving all the problems that they have but then we have of course Zarathustra's response a rejection of that idolization and adoration and getting into the deep points about creation itself as a joyful experience something that should be childlike in the next episode we'll be continuing on reading through part 4 of Zarathustra into the next sections of the last supper and of the higher man many thanks for listening to the episode 
feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Feel free to tip me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com and I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time. <laughs>